Bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you that may not have been here the last week or two, or for those of you that might be visiting, we are in our fall sermon series, and this year we're focusing on Romans 1 through 8, which uh, scholars and biblical commentators have referred to as the gospel according to Paul. And in fact, if you look at the first 15 verses of chapter 1, what you'll see is Paul using the actual word or phrase, the gospel or gospel, four times. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to say to both the Jews and the Gentiles who are in Rome, this is the gospel. So that they're on the same page. Because as oftentimes when Paul writes his letters, his epistles, he's often writing to a place where there's some tension or conflict, and that was true in Rome as well. Because of what had happened there with the church with the Jews and with the Gentiles, and how, because of the tension, Paul was trying to say, let's just get on the same page with the gospel so that we all understand this is for all of us and what that means for us as God's church. So he's trying to bring them together and explain the gospel, and he does it in a very elaborate way, and he addresses it to both. At times you'll read Jews, at times you'll read Gentiles with the goal in mind of making everyone united for the sake of the gospel. Now, two weeks ago, we did the introduction, the first few verses, and talked about Paul and talked about Rome, and the theme, the theme being uh, the righteous shall live by faith, which is found in verse 17. And we also talked about how God has revealed himself to everyone. That's the basis, that's the foundation in creation. You can see that God is an orderly God, a creative God, a God of majesty and power by just looking at creation. So we get a hint at who he is, that he created, if you will, a moral universe. So we get all these indications, and so Paul comes to the conclusion, everyone's without excuse because of that. So now we come to chapter 2, and you may have noticed this is a bit of a long reading. Well, that's if we're going to get through Romans 1 through 8 in 10 weeks, we have to have some long readings. And you're going to have a chapter a week for the next few weeks. I'll just give you a warning about that. Because really, if you look at chapter 2, it's part of the argument that holds together and hits both sides, Jews and Gentiles. So it's important to read it all together and to deal with it all together. Because Paul, as he continues this argument, again is addressing both Jews and Gentiles and he's building his case. Back to chapter 1, he said, based on creation. But what's happened since? Well, we've got the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, so how does this apply to both of them? How does this reach both people groups? Because with the gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him 
John 3.16. That's what Paul is trying to say. And the gospel, in fact, had been in Rome for probably, at this point, about 20 years. Because if you remember Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which happened 40 days, 40 days, 50 days after Jesus rose again from the dead, and the Spirit is poured out, that you will read in, in chapter 2, verse 10, that there were Jews from Rome who came in contact with the gospel, who accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and brought it back to Rome. And then because they understood the gospel and came to know the gospel and understood it to be for others, they shared the gospel. And they were aware of that God so loved the world. So eventually Gentiles came in. But then because of what had happened in Rome, there was this conflict. And Paul's trying to say, it's still God so loved the world. And we have to be on the same page. So the first way that that will happen is if you Jews and you Gentiles don't start judging each other. We are so quick to judge people. And oftentimes for very superficial reasons, aren't we? Did you catch the woman who was caught in adultery? She was a notorious sinner. And everybody was ready to judge her. Now Jesus judged her behavior in saying, go and sin no more. But the judgment would come later at the final judgment. And in the meantime, what God's interested in is us offering the gospel to those who don't know him. What God's also interested in is that those of us who sin repent. What God's also interested in is that we learn to forgive each other and give grace to each other and love each other. And as much as we're confronting sin in our own lives and in other lives, we're not judging. That's God's job. But we are so quick to judge. And we judge by such superficial things. Someone walks in and we say, well, you see what they're wearing tonight. We judge by what people wear, their clothing. Let me tell you when I really think that began in earnest in the United States was when designer clothing started creeping in. And people started noticing where or from whom you bought your product. I often wonder if, you know, because I'm wearing like a particular shirt, whether it should actually be cheaper because I'm doing advertisement for them. But I remember when I was a kid, and some of you this is like going to make no sense to because you're too young. I understand that. But when I was a kid, you could buy clothing that looked exactly like the expensive clothing, only it was much less expensive. And it looked the same. It didn't, didn't maybe last as long, but it looked the same. Because I remember when I was a kid, my parents used to take us to Woolworths. And used to take us to W.T. Grant, right? Now, I, I want to ask a question, a couple questions. Because I'm going to give you a little history lesson. 
What was Woolworths called when it first opened? Woolworths what? Five and dime or five and ten? See that? There are some people who know that besides me. The implication is everything in here is cheap, but, you know, back when it opened up as a five and dime, you could actually buy some quality stuff because Woolworths opened up in 1879. That was the first Woolworths. So when it was a five and dime, you could actually afford some decent stuff. W.T. Grant. Does anyone know what W.T. Grant was called besides just W.T. Grant? The 25 cent store. Oh, now we're stepping up. Right? And that opened in 1906. I was not there. (laughs) I was there when Walmart opened. Does anyone know when Walmart opened what year? The first Walmart opened in 1962. However, Sam Walton, who actually went bankrupt at one point, Sam Walton actually opened his first store in 1945. And it was called Walton's Five and Dime. But then what he discovered is he could make a lot more money and he could go places as he opened these huge chains. So after he opened the first Walmart in 62 and then started buying some name brand stuff because he bought it in bulk, they finally franchised in 69 and it exploded. And now Walmart is the number one private employer in the world in terms of size. Some of you know that. But 69 is when it was franchised. It was actually in the 80s when it started to explode and go everywhere. And in the 90s, it started going international. Now, there's probably not many people here today that don't know Walmart. But they have some designer stuff, right? So once again, are we trying to get away with buying designer stuff cheaply? Or things that look like it cheaply? Because we're all so conscious of how we look. Why? Because we are judging each other. By what you wear by what you drive, by what your appearance is. Judgmentalism and gossip are two of our favorite pastimes in the United States. Where we love to talk about people. When really that is so destructive. And that's what Paul's basically saying. You can be a Jew, you can be a Gentile, and you can find reasons to judge the other based on the fact that you're a Jew or a Gentile. And God's saying, there's something deeper here. There's something more important here than just judging someone by what they wear or what they drive or where they live. And whether, in fact, you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. What matters is what you believe. What matters is what's in your heart. What matters is, because of what you believe, how do you live? That's what matters. So that's what he's driving at here. 
There's something far deeper with far more significance here. In the wonderful story about David in the Old Testament, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, about man looks on appearance, God looks at the heart. That's what God is interested in. That's what we should be interested in. Where is our heart? Is it with the Lord? Are we really seeking after Him? To have a heart that's open to His Spirit, open to His love and to His grace, to His mercy, and then begin to share that and pour that out on other people. That's the question. Because it's a far deeper significance than what we look like. Secondly, as he continues this, he basically is building the case that will culminate next week in Romans chapter 3. Sinning is an equal opportunity. Employer. You know, you ever watch TV or listen to radio where they say, we're an equal opportunity employer. So sinning. In other words, you can be a Jew in sin, you can be a Gentile in sin. Sinning is that which is common to all of us. In fact, when Paul, Paul is continuing to build this case about we're all on the same plane and we all need this Savior, he finally culminates this building the foundation of the gospel when he gets to Romans 3.20 and 3.23 when he says, None are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore you don't look at other people and judge them. Because God is the ultimate judge and final judge. Judge behavior? Yes, we've got to judge behavior. If you're sitting in a theater and someone walks in with a semi-automatic weapon, you're not going to sit there and say, oh, I wonder what he's doing with that. You're going to respond because of his behavior. We have to judge behavior. We have to make decisions about behavior for ourselves and for those we love. But we don't judge them. We try to share the Lord with them. We pray for them. That's what God is after with us. And so, all of us sin. And what he's saying to the Jews is, you know, typically what you Jews, the way you fail is, you know the law, you claim to follow the law, but in fact you don't really follow the law, you're imperfect according to the law. Be honest about it. Repent. You don't get it all right. And actually take it a step further, what you Jews oftentimes do is you rationalize and justify and you craft the law to fit your own needs and desires. So really, don't judge other people because you do some of what they do. Maybe differently, but you do that. So the Jews had a way of sinning that was kind of unique to them. The Gentiles, on the other hand, what does Paul say about the Gentiles? You know what he says about the Gentiles? They were given a conscience. You know where the phrase, you remember the phrase, I'll start it, you'll finish it. Let your conscience be your guide. Where do you think that came from? Here. That came from here. In other words, what Paul's saying is, the Jews were given the law, the Gentiles were given their conscience. In other words, going back to this whole idea in Romans 1, God created everything. We get a sense of who He is. 
And then God would eventually reach out to Abraham and to the Hebrews and he would give his revelation and he would give his Ten Commandments and he would give his law. But for the Gentiles, because they didn't have access to that, he gave the conscience. So that you would have, if you will, an internal guide to get a sense not only of who God is from creation, but what right or wrong is. And guess what? We all violate our consciences. Once again, we can talk our consciences into, oh, this is okay for me. Just like we can rationalize or justify misuse of the law. It doesn't matter. Sin is equal opportunity. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard the term a seared conscience. You know, where you corrupt your conscience long enough or you do something long enough that your conscience is no longer trying to stop you from doing it because you've so convinced yourself that you're right or that this is okay for you to do. And we see it in various levels in society. For example, the KKK. That's an example of people with a seared conscience. They're so convinced that they're right. They're so convinced it's God's will and they've got the peer pressure that they just buy into it until if one day they wake up and say, this is not right. Or you watch those trials on TV. Remember the two boys that killed their parents because they wanted the inheritance? And if you look at their face, there is no remorse. There's no guilt or shame. Because they had convinced themselves that they were right. See, we can talk our consciences or live in such a way that they no longer work. You see that, actually, in mental institutions, too. I did my clinical pastor education uh, in a mental institution, lived on the grounds for 11 weeks. Honest, I really was one of the people, you know. But I, but I lived there for 11 weeks. And it was really, really fascinating because I, because I worked the admissions ward, I saw everything. It was a great experience. And I actually saw people that were sociopaths and psychopaths coming through the door. And I don't know if you've ever experienced psychopath or sociopath. Psychopath has stepped over the line. Sociopaths are fascinating people. They're, they're almost, I hate to put it this way, they're almost fun. Because they're so whacked out in terms of convincing them, themselves that they're right, that they try to put a positive spin on it, and they're very upbeat people, and they're trying to sell you on it, and it's like, you're sitting there saying, are you kidding me? You really buy this? But they're almost fun people. I hate to, right? Cherry's a counselor. I'm looking at Cherry and she's going, yes. I mean, it's really fascinating. They have a seared conscience. We name their illness because they have a problem. See, and we play mini games like that. Maybe it's not everything. But these little corners of our lives... And that's why Jesus would say, that's why Paul would say, don't judge. Don't judge another person because we all sin. That's why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not 
lest you be judged. Now he goes on to talk about, interestingly enough, that we are to judge behavior in that passage. People forget that. That we are to confront those around us that we love that are falling short. But there's a difference, I'll say it again, there's a difference between that and judging. Study the scripture. Study how Jesus lived. Study what Paul did. You'll understand more of what I'm talking about with this. And he finally comes to this last section in chapter 2 where once again he gets specific to the Jews. And he begins to allude to that which he will pick up later. There's an allusion to Moses. There's a naming of Abraham that he will really pick up in earnest in chapter 4. Why would he pick these two people out as examples to what he's talking about? I think there's a reason. The first is that Abraham is called the father of faith. He was the one that was called by the Lord first. Guess what he was before he became the first of the Hebrew people? A Gentile. You understand? Before he became the first of the Hebrew people that God revealed himself to, and then God gave his revelation to the Jewish people the rest of the time, it began with Abraham. He was a Gentile before that. Moses. Moses was raised as a Gentile. He lived in Pharaoh's house. Yes, he was born Jewish, but he got it wrong. Moses had a problem with anger. Abraham had a problem with lying. They weren't perfect. And that's why Paul is picking out these two people that were absolutely revered in their faith. Fathers of covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments. And he says they're flawed. They're sinners. They actually lived as Gentiles. He's saying this in so many words. But it was their faith that reckoned them as righteous. It was their willingness to repent. It was their willingness to submit to the Lord. It was their willingness to respond to His call. So the Jews are not righteous because they're Jewish. The Jews are not righteous because they're circumcised. The Jews are not righteous because they're legalists. The Jews have the law to guide them by faith. That they were meant to share with the Gentiles. Blessed to be a blessing. The father of many nations to Abraham. The Jews even lost sight at one point of the law. It totally. I don't know if, if any of you don't know biblical history. That is to say the Old Testament. Because many people like to stay away from the Old Testament. You just got to read some of it. Because it's really fascinating. During the day of King Josiah... The kingdom was a mess. People were sinning right and left. And all of a sudden, the priests find the book of Deuteronomy. That's like saying, we're the Jewish people, we follow God. By the way, where's my Bible? It's gone. It's nowhere to be found. And Josiah, the priests, find the book of Deuteronomy and they say, well, this is how we're supposed to live as the Jewish people. Oh my goodness, we've really messed up. And what happens? Reformation. Josiah's Deuteronomic reform. And the people come back to their faith. Why? 
Because they found the word of God. Why? Because their hearts were inclined to repent. That's why. That's what God's after. God's after your heart. Paul talks about a hardness of heart. And we can have a hardened heart. Whether it be legalism for the Jew or a seared conscience for the Gentile. We can have a hardened heart. And no longer seek after the Lord and His will. No longer allow His word to permeate our hearts. His spirit to soften our hearts. And He wants to give us a clean heart. David discovered that when he failed, when he sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's repentance. That God wants to take that hardened heart and he wants to soften our hardened heart. Ezekiel 36 is one of my favorite passages with that. I will give you a new heart. Soft heart. That's what he wants for all of us. And when we really discover and understand the kind of heart he wants us to have, our first response is our own repentance. And then our own humility where we empty ourselves. And we ask the Lord to fill us with his spirit. And we ask the Lord to teach us. And then what begins to happen is as we are being transformed, we desire that others would know the good news, the gospel. That's what Paul's laying the foundation for here. It's not just about law. It's not just about morality. It's so that we all understand that we're sinners saved by grace. And it's a gift. You don't earn it. You're not righteous because you work at it. Because you're earning your way to heaven. It's not how it works. When Paul gets to Romans 6, the gospel in a nutshell, for the wages of sin is death. Understand, we're all sinners. We all deserve death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the key. When we understand He needed to die for us, for our sin, because we could not save ourselves. When we understand we're all sinners in need of repentance. When we understand the depth of God's grace and love. And we receive it. And we allow our hardened hearts to be softened. Then we become transformed. And then we become people of grace. Because we've received grace and we want to pass grace on that's what he's after. And that's why Paul is laying this foundation of you need to understand that you're a sinner first. Because that's where it begins. Don't look to judge. Don't look to justify yourself. Look to him. The one who offers you the gift. The one who desires you to repent. That the faith will live. The righteous will live by faith. It's that faith. 
Please bow with me in prayer. Where is your heart right now? Do you know your heart? Do you know where your heart is? And does he have your heart? To soften it, to mold it, to transform it. That our heart might be his heart. That we're no longer Christians because it's in our mind. But we're Christians because we understand repentance and faith. And we understand the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. To mold us and to use us. Lord God, we live in an age where people are so comfortable with rationalizing or justifying. We live in an age when people are quick to judge, oftentimes for superficial reasons. We live in an age where people say they believe in God, but they have no idea what that means because they're not open to repentance and true faith that changes the heart and thereby changes the life. Lord, we pray that we would be the people that are open to your word, open to your gift, open to your spirit, that you would transform us and that you would use us to touch others. Lord, give us such a heart, your heart, that we might love you and walk by grace and seek to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.